This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Daniel Bender, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue features special sections on ingredients, from salmon to chicken, taste and technology in East Asia, and excursions on exploration of food and mobility. As well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For the next six weeks, join special hosts from Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with issue editor authors. My guest this week is Colline Ferrand. Colline is a PhD candidate in sociology at Sciences Po and Northwestern University. She has written broadly about food, class, and work in cities from Chicago to Santiago to Paris. Thank you for joining us from Paris today, and welcome to the show. Pleasure. Colleen, in this particular moment of the pandemic and the food crisis it has provoked, and we'll come back to that hopefully towards the end of our discussion, we're hearing a lot in the term food deserts. It seems to show up all over the place in ordinary conversation, in policy documents, newspaper accounts, and more. But let's pause. Perhaps you can define the word, the term food desert all over again. Uh, right. So with the framework of food desert, it's the notion that in a disadvantaged neighborhood, the, um, the food supply is limited to uh, fast foods or um, you know, unhealthy options in a, in a broad sense. And so in this, uh, in this context, um, the you know, neighborhood characteristics are assumed to have negative consequences on uh, residents' uh, nutritional outcomes and uh, over the effects of uh, individual characteristics. By contrast, we don't hear the term, you use the term in your, your wonderful uh, your wonderful submission, we don't hear the term food oases very much in ordinary conversation. What do you think that that, how might you define that term for us? So food oasis might be uh, just the, you know, the reverse. Um, so, so the notion that, um, you know, for, for um, residents of neighborhoods with a, with a rich and diverse uh, food, um, food, food supply. So the, the fact of living in those neighborhoods will have uh, positive consequences on the residents' uh, nutritional outcomes and, um, and, and again, over the effects of uh, individual characteristics. Now, your article entitled Food Desert or Food Oases, Insights from Mexican Chicago, challenge how we use these terms and give us a sense of how much these terms are being used in ordinary parlance, as well as in how, for example, how policymakers understand neighborhood food access. Mm. Once you were just mentioning, as you were just offering a definition of a food desert, it, it struck me that part of the understanding of food desert there was was a, an implication, something negative about, about the food system as a whole. But do you think in the way we use food desert, 
the way it is often just ordinarily used, do you think there's a little bit of blame that gets placed on local residents? Yeah, right. So we are, you know, we are blaming the, we are blaming the residents. And uh, I mean, first we are blaming the neighborhoods, but by extension, by association, the neighborhood residents as the, for their, for, for their obesity. So there, yeah, there's definitely an element of uh, victim blaming in, uh, in that framework. Now, before you tell us some more about, about alternative ways in which we should understand neighborhoods like Mexican Chicago, can you tell us a little bit about your, your research methods? How did you go about um, conducting this fascinating research on Mexican Chicago? So my methods are ethnographic. So I conducted both observation and in-depth interviews in two majority Mexican neighborhoods in Chicago, so Pilsen and Gage Park. So ethnographic methods, basically being on the field and talking to people. So for those of us, I haven't been to Chicago for, for a very long time, not likely to go anytime soon, as I'm recording here from Toronto, Canada. Um, mm-hmm. For those who haven't visited this area of Chicago, can you just give us a little bit of an oral tour around the neighborhood? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Who lives there? Yeah, so, um, so, so the, the two neighborhoods, so Pilsen, uh, Ain, and uh, Gage Park. So Pilsen is um, is a, is represented as a quintessential uh, Mexican neighborhood. So meaning a place of uh, uh, a place of, of safety and uh, entertainment, uh, resources, uh, food for the Mexican community in in Chicago and in the Midwest in a, in a broad sense. So um, so you, you could think of it yeah, as a quintessential uh, Mexican neighborhood. And it's located uh, quite close to the city center, actually. Uh, so hence uh, a process of gentrification going on. So you have um, the mostly white uh, upper middle class newcomers uh, being attracted to Pilsen as both uh, a neighborhood that is uh, conveniently located within Chicagoland and also, uh, you know, from the perspective of these white uh, uh, newcomers, um, also, you know, a kind of an authentic place, right? Whereas uh, from the perspective of um, Mexican, uh, the Mexican working class, yeah, is a it's it's mostly thought as a as a safe as a safe neighborhood and a, and a neighborhood of a collective uh, uh, cultural uplift. So this is Pilsen, and the uh, the other neighborhood uh, in which I conducted the fieldwork is uh, Gage Park. So it's located uh, precisely on the southwest side of uh, Chicago. Um, the housing stock is mostly uh, bungalows. Uh, so it's a, uh, yeah, you, can, you you could visualize it as a, as a typical, uh, you know, residential n- neighborhood of the outskirts of a, of a big American city. And it was originally a majority uh, Irish uh, neighborhood, but in uh, recent decades, uh, together with the, the, the steady labor migration from Mexico to Chicago um, uh, throughout the, the 20th century. So in the, in the recent decades, it became a majority Mexican neighborhood. So, so, in, so um, if you were walking, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just to, just to summarize. So, I get, uh, so, so about Gage Park, you could uh, think of it as a, yeah, as a, as a residential, uh, majority Mexican, uh, working class neighborhood. Now, if you were walking down the street in a, a, not a residential street, but perhaps one of the more commercial streets in, in both of these different neighborhoods, what might, what kind of shops might be there? Um, so um, mostly uh, immigrant-owned uh, shops. Uh, I mean, immigrant, but not necessarily a Mexican. Also Greek and Spanish, but in uh, 
in general, um, immigrant-owned shops that uh, that do supply uh, fresh uh, produce. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so yes, food uh, food shops that uh, that do emphasize the supply of fresh uh, of fresh produce, and um, uh, restaurants and uh, cantinas as well. So a desert with a fair number of trees, perhaps. Absolutely. When, <laughs> when you set out for your research, did was fruit deserts on your mind, or as you talked to to residents in in these two neighborhoods, did you find yourself wondering about why these terms are used, perhaps from the outside? Mm, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I did not come to the field with the, you know, with the notion of food deserts in mind, but I was uh, rather interested in the, perhaps the more general question of uh, how do uh, immigrants get to recreate the, their, their food practices in, uh, you know, in different locations. Um, and then so, something that, uh, that I found interesting is that despite, uh, you know, the, avail the availability of, um, yeah, of a fresh produce of, um, uh, of, of food stuff in their neighborhood, uh, the, the, the residents of, the, of these two neighborhoods, so both Pilsen and Gage Park, were still um, arti articulating uh, crafting acqu acquisition practices that spanned uh, Chicagoland. And so here I was like, this is interesting because um, if you think about the, you know, the, the most uh, the most famous notions of food access, so either food desert or food neighborhood, uh, or food, um, uh, food, food desert or food oasis, uh, are very much uh, neighborhood centric, right? And so I was. Uh, I guess my first uh, approach was uh, was like they seem to be living in a kind of a food oasis, but their food oasis seems to be Chicago land in uh, in general and not just their neighborhoods. So I was like, uh, so let's uh, you know let's tackle the approach of food desert slash food oasis as the yeah the dominant framework to understand the food access and acquisition in uh, in urban neighborhoods and uh, by means of of uh, of the ethnographic method, let's try to to complicate. Uh, to complicate the framework and, uh, you know, starting from uh, from people's per perspectives and people's uh, strategies. And I think you've done that in, in fascinating ways. And before we get into some of those implications, can I ask you a little bit, who were who some of the people that you spoke to? How, how did you identify your informants? Um, uh, I mean, uh, so... so um, I, I guess uh, I had, uh, you know, field uh, um, ethnographic methods uh, in, uh, in general, in the sense that I was not trying to uh, select people based on, uh, you know, particular sociodemographics or age. I was just interest, interested in the, um, you know, in, in Mexican neighborhoods. And then within, I just talked to, uh, you know, whatever people I was, uh, I was encountering, I was meeting in those, uh, in those neighborhoods. And... Um, I mean, and, and this also, you know, perhaps adds an element of uh, contextualization for the case of Pilsen, right, which I uh, told you about, because it turned out that in, um, in Gage Park, I was mostly meeting with, uh, with local residents, residents of Gage Park, um, so the working class residential uh, um, Mexican neighborhood. And in the case of Pilsen, uh, by just, uh, you know, hanging out on the street and talking to people, I was also meeting uh, uh, a number of um uh, of a former residents of uh, of Pilsen, so Mexican first and second generation immigrants, but that then uh, um, relocated to other neighborhoods uh, across Chicagoland and particularly in the suburbs, but that was still getting back to uh, to Pilsen to uh, 
to buy groceries and to uh, and to go to church so to uh, you know to relieve the sense of uh, the, the sense of a mexican community in uh, in pilsen so their their former neighborhood and also the the, quint- the quintessential uh, neighborhood of mexican chicago so uh, let me read you just just one quote that just jumped out at me and, and for our listeners to, to, to hear the quote. You interviewed a U.S.-born community organizer who, as you put it, he said plainly, quote, there's so much food here. Food in the middle of something that is a, a food desert. That line really struck out to me. Um I'm I'm curious several things about that that short lovely quote. First, what was the question that you might have asked that provoked that response? But the other question is there's a certain element of surprise. There's so much food here. Was he answering your response and perhaps answering back to to city policymakers, to nutritionists, to whoever who might have been calling this neighborhood with so many shops, a food desert. So I'm curious, what what did you ask him that that caused him with a little exclamation to say, there's so much food here? Um, if I remember well, it was in the in the middle of a conversation in which I was making the observation that um, you know, I was meeting a lot of former residents who 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 were getting back to the neighborhood to uh, to uh, to to buy their groceries. And so the reaction was like, yeah, but this is a uh, this is because there's, there's just so much food, uh, so much food here, so much, uh, so much uh, diversity and variety of, uh, of options. Well, it is remarkable that that people are coming back to buy groceries to a place that is still represented as a food desert. What is it about? On some level, you the 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 absence of a mainstream supermarket sometimes can label a place as a food desert. Why is it that the small stores that this one community organizer was coming back to shop at, what is it that about small stores, ingredients perhaps from, from places like Mexico seem inve- invisible to those who are deciding whether a place is or is not a food desert? Um but, but just to clarify, I mean, uh, by the city of Chicago, neither uh, Pilsen nor Gage Park is uh, is labeled as a food uh, as a food desert. But if mm-hmm. uh, that term was uh, uh, was actually used by the you know white uh, per middle class newcomers that, that, that I was interviewing, so you know, so some of them were referring to uh, to Pilsen as a yeah as a food desert, uh, in the sense that the that there was not a, there is a there is a supermarket in uh, in Pilsen, Pilsen called, called uh, La Casa del Pueblo, but there is not um, uh, you know this this type of a big uh, brand uh, supermarkets like Walmart or even Whole Foods. So in that sense, you know, I, I guess a, a, a white upper middle class newcomer could uh, could think of Pilsen as a, as a as a food desert. But other than that, it's not uh, it's not labeled as a food desert. So. Neither by the city of Chicago, you know, institutionally, nor by the by the local uh, Mexican residents. It's a very oh. interesting point about where a food desert is something that exists both in the imagination of perhaps those from outside of a community, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's in contrast to to official policymakers. But to to those kinds of residents, why don't those that the supermarket that you that you mentioned? Uh, to the small stores, why do they seem invisible to them? 
Um, is it a question of race? Is it a question of, of ingredients and the racialization of ingredients? Um, I guess it's a question of food, uh, of food of preferences, um, because, um, a major aspect of the food uh, pre preferences and practices of, um, of uh, Hispanics in general, and uh, in the case of my study, uh, Mexican first and uh, second generation immigrants, is the, the emphasis on uh, uh, consuming and cooking from uh, fresh produce. So meaning uh, fruits, uh, vegetables, and, uh, and meat. And so these are, these, these are produce that, um, that, that these, uh, these residents mostly acquire from, uh, from small uh, shops, right? And not necessarily from big uh, supermarkets. Or if they do from big su uh, su supermarkets, it's uh, they mostly buy on special offer, right? And so in the yeah in, in the institutional uh, framework of food deserts, it's uh, in most instances it's it's being uh, you know counted or quantified as uh, you know the number of um, the, the number of of, of uh, supermarkets and hypermarkets. But here you know I point to the existence of. Um, Yes, small uh, in in most instances, uh, immigrant-owned shops as a as a major supplier of um, the preferred ingredients of this community, and so specifically uh, uh, fruits, vegetables, and meat. So produce, fresh uh, fresh produce. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back with Colleen in just a moment. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, Food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. And we are back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Dan Dio Bender, talking with Colleen Ferrand about her article, Food Desert or Food Oases, Insights from Mexico and Chicago, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Colleen, right at the beginning of your paper, you ask a simple sounding question, but one with profound implications. You ask, are Mexican immigrants in Chicago able to find the products they grew up with and still love? What in the end did you find? In the end, uh, long story short, the answer is yes. What kind of products were they looking for? And um, what were their reactions And when you talked to them as they described finding those kinds of products? Yes, yeah, so the, the products they, uh, they grew up with and they still love are mostly uh, produce, uh, fresh produce, uh, fruits, uh, vegetables, and meat, and, uh, and sometimes uh, fish for, for, for those, um, those immigrants of uh, coastal, uh, coastal areas. And uh, interestingly, they, they emphasize that in the 
uh, in past decades, uh, the, the, there was less availability of these uh, of these fresh products. But they do emphasize, uh, you know, in the case of um, mostly you know long time immigrants, that the, the availability of uh, fresh products has been increasing in past uh, in past years, in past uh, in past decades, and in two ways. So both in the um, uh, the variety of products per se, and also the variety of uh, outlets that do supply these uh, the, these products. So they emphasize that they can find these products both at uh, you know uh, immigrant-owned shops, but they are also increasingly available in um, in what they call you know Amer- American stores. So uh, meaning you know big uh, big supermarkets. It, did you find a concern about the impact of gentrification among? Me- uh, those of Mexican origin in in places uh, in some of these neighborhoods. Did you find a concern, not just about the kinds of costs, but actually, say, the arrival of a smoothie shop that you described um, as perhaps leading to a kind of a food desert? Mm. Um, residents felt the effects of gentrification as mostly in terms of uh, housing. So meaning rising uh, rising rents and so people getting evicted from Pilsen and uh, relocating to, uh, to to the suburbs, but they were not feeling so much the effects of gentrification uh, at least at this uh, at this point on the um, on the retail structure. And uh, and so in 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 that sense uh, they were not uh, you know they were not really bothered they did not care that much about the um, you know the arrival of uh, smoothie places or uh, you know typical. Uh, what we think of typical the stores for gentrifiers, they did not care them that much. In uh, to the extent that they w- they were still able to access their, um, their 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 shops for them. Did they feel an an urge for a, a need to, for those kinds of uh, the shops that their shops, as you just put it? Did they feel an urge or suggest that those shops needed to be to be protected, perhaps in the face of rising rents? Yeah, like I said, um, you know, in their words, they were really mostly concerned about the uh, about housing, so about the rents for you know for for everyday uh, everyday people, um, and and so they were still you know finding uh, you know contentment in uh, being able to uh, to to access the, access their, their their stores, and also they were you know mentioning these uh, uh, former neighbors of theirs who moved to the suburbs and who are still able to find uh, to to find the produce that they that, that they want. Uh, Back in their neighborhoods, back in back in Pilsen. Have you had a chance to share some of these research findings with with some of the people that you interviewed? Um, no, not not at this uh, not, not at this moment. But I do have the the project of uh, you know potentially um, collaborating with uh, with with um, those community organizers that I did interview to share to share my findings with uh, with them. And how how might you go about doing that? Because it's such a fascinating project that you have, and you're asking such powerful questions about access to the right food. Really, is a question of food sovereignty. Um, these seem like really important findings for for all kinds of different stakeholders to hear. Mm. Yeah, perhaps in the sense that um, you know, like, like I said. Uh, I did not feel so much of a concern when it comes to the shops because, uh, I mean, the, the effects were not being really felt uh, apart from the arrival of uh, new uh, gentrifiers uh, shops. But uh, something that was, you know, really emphasized um, uh, by, uh, by by my informants was the need to um, the need for their 
I would say their infrastructure of everyday life uh, to persist and uh, and relatedly the sense uh, the sense of community. Now inevitably that that these are questions that are very much on our mind as I was walking down um the street in my neighborhood here in Toronto, a largely Greek neighborhood in Toronto, and not having been on the main street for even a week, a whole series of new of shops have been newly boarded up. You mentioned the word persist, and, and here's a, a moment where inevitably, though you did this research before the pandemic hit, it must mm-hmm. be very much on your mind, some of the shops, some of the shoppers. Uh, can we revisit the neighborhood now? Um, what news have you heard? What has changed? Um, no, I mean, no, nothing has really changed, you know, structurally since, uh, you know, since, since the pandemic. In this, uh, because these are, you know, these are essential, uh, essential businesses. Um, but perhaps uh, the effects would be, you know, rather felt uh, not in the short term, but in the in, in the long term. Do you feel like on some level, I mean, one of the concerns that I think that that comes out of my reading of this, one of the concerns is if these kinds of shops are so important to the to to Mexican Chicagoans who are who are shopping there, but are perhaps relatively invisible, perhaps to the gentrifiers, perhaps to 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 larger city policymakers, these kinds of questions about access to the right food, to the food that people love, is also a fundamental question about how to maintain culinary infrastructure in a moment of, of real change, right? Mm-hmm. So you're asking some questions here, and very important and very powerful questions, and questions about food access. Now, this seems like a good place for me to give you an opportunity. You've you've given us a sense of where the notions of food desert and food oases both failed to capture the different ways in which ordinary people go about finding their own lives, finding their own the foods that they love and the foods that sustain them. Here's an opportunity, perhaps towards the end of our conversation here. Can you give us a, perhaps a better term? that we might use to understand a neighborhood like Pilsen, Gage Park? Um, I mean, the first uh, thing, uh, I think the focus should be on the residents that, rather than the neighborhood, right? And so I would say, uh, you know, I would tweak the, the, the phrase as a, not a Pilsen period and a Gage Park period, but rather residents of Pilsen and residents of Gage Park, right? And uh, then moving from, uh, you know, the static and uh, spatially central notions of uh, food deserts and food oases to, to where the, rather thinking about the, the creation of food access and acquisition. I think that's a very important transition. Uh, thank you so much, Colleen, for joining us. This is exciting work. And listeners can read the full article, Food Desert or Food Oases, Insights from Mexican Chicago, forthcoming in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume 20.4, which is due out in November 2020. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as we talk to Kyung Jin Bai about his fascinating history of soy sauce in Imperial and Colonial Korea. Thank you again, Colleen. Thank you. 
meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.